This is a recording of Max Weber, a bourgeois Marx, from Ideas of Freedom 2019, with the speaker, Dan Davison. When I'm not being a rabble-rouser in my UCU branch at Cambridge, uh, I have a day job as a respectable bourgeois sociologist. <laughs> so... Um, that is really what led me to put on this topic. The question of the legacy of Max Weber. Now, before I continue, who here has at least some prior familiarity with Weber? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, Weber is reputed as one of the founding fathers of sociology. There's actually historically a bit of a suspect claim, but uh, he's still generally placed centrally in the canon of sociology as a discipline. So, Weber himself was born in 1864 in what was then Prussia. He died in 1920 in Bavaria, and he very much came from a wealthy bourgeois background. Indeed, um, his father was a lawyer, a parliamentary representative in the imperial parliament, the Reichstag, and a member of the National Liberal Party. Now, it's important to bear in mind some historical context for Weber's uh, ideas. Um, <coughs> bear in mind that Germany was only reunified into the German Empire in 1871, so when Weber was just seven, and the German Empire itself obviously was superseded by the Weimar Republic in 1918, just two years before Weber's death. So as you can imagine, the questions of uh, the rise of the modern German nation-state and the drastic social changes that accompanied that process were very much prominent in the background of Weber's life and his scholarly writings. So, that brings us to the question of that epithet, the bourgeois Marx. So, Weber and Marx are very often thought about together as contrasting theorists of capitalism and of modernity, despite the fact that Weber really belonged to the generation that came after Marx. And although Weber was initially educated in law, he very quickly developed a lifelong interest in more historically focused studies of economic, social and political development. And although he initially resisted the label, he eventually became known as a sociologist and is now often regarded retrospectively as one of its founding fathers. Now, at least amongst sociologists, Weber is probably best known for what's termed an interpretivist or hermeneutical approach to sociology. That means an emphasis on the importance of the subjective meaning that actors attach to their own actions. So this is Weber's take on an older concept within German philosophy known as Verstehen, 
understanding. Uh, if I may quote him at length, uh, in his view, sociology is the science whose object is to interpret the meaning of social action and thereby give a causal explanation of the way in which action proceeds and the effects it produces. By action in this definition is meant the human behaviour when and to the extent that the agents or agents see it as subjectively meaningful. The meaning to which we refer may be either a, the meaning actually intended either by an individual agent on a particular historical occasion or by a number of agents on an approximate average in a given set of cases, or b, the meaning attributed <coughs> to the agent or agents as types in a pure type constructed in the abstract. Now, at this point in history, both Marx and Weber are considered canonical within sociology, i.e. if you take a standard sociology degree, you will cover both, usually in the first year of your degree. That wasn't always the case. Marx only really entered the sociological canon, at least in the US, in the late 60s, in part because of the surge of radical politics on campus in the US and the way that reignited interest in Marxist ideas. Okay, so let's take things back to the fundamental question of this session. Why should Marxists care about Weber? It's a valid question. The two had strikingly different personal backgrounds and politics. Although both saw capitalism as, in some sense, progressive in relation to feudalism, obviously, Marx was a socialist, whereas Weber was a liberal nationalist. In other words, he believed that German reunification and industrial development were progressive, and that set him at odds with the Prussian landed nobles of the 19th century, known as the Junkers, who sided with the monarchy in the revolution of 1848. But nobody would really count Weber as left-wing. Likewise, um, if, you, if you look at um, their professional lives, Marx never held a university position, whereas Weber was a lifelong academic and very much part of the German intelligentsia. And, this worth stressing, that Weber was extremely transparent about his bourgeois background, to the point that in his own inaugural lecture at Freiburg University in 1895, he openly admitted that, quote, I am a member of the bourgeoisie, I was reared in its values and ideals, and I identify myself with it. Likewise, their approaches to social theory were markedly different. As I've already noted, Weber was very much about the importance of subjective meaning, especially in relation to how actors conceptualise social action, especially as a chain of means and ends, i.e. we perform 
x action in order to achieve y. And although he had a very historical approach, he understood this in sharp contrast to um, Marx's historical materialism. Weber considered historical materialism illuminating, but also one-sided in its characterization of material, mainly economic, factors as supreme. Uh, Weber preferred what's known as a multi-causal approach to analysis, uh, one that takes into account both ideal and material factors. And one sees that in his famous 1904 essay, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. That essay is often misunderstood as a piece that argues that capitalism arose from religious ideas. Uh, in this case, um, that uh, forms of Calvinist asceticism, uh, self-denial and discipline, um, which arose in response to the idea of predestination, i.e. that uh, it, it is already fated uh, whether or not uh, we will go to heaven when we die, uh, created a specific kind of work ethic which stressed diligence and the accumulation of wealth by denying one's own immediate gratification and that they did this as a way of producing outward signs that one is amongst uh, God's chosen. Now, that characterization is not quite accurate. It's better to think of Protestant ethic as an argument about how those kinds of religious practices arising from ideal motivations had what he termed an elective affinity with existing forms of early capitalism, and how these fused to create the specifically modern form of capitalism that first arose in the West. In other words, Weber does not argue that religious factors have some kind of historical priority over material ones. Like I noted before, Weber was also very sceptical of the notion of objective laws of history, and even of the objective universal nature of general concepts. You can even see that in his original German writings, where he will very often place conceptual terminology in inverted commas. And at least in his later works, um, he adopted what are known as ideal types, by which we mean hypothetical, deliberately one-sided um, concepts that are constructed from elements and characteristics of a given phenomenon, but do not capture all of the elements and characteristics of any specific case. In his words, an ideal type is formed by the one-sided accentuation of one or more points of view and by the synthesis of a great many diffuse, discrete, more or less present and occasionally absent concrete individual phenomena which are arranged according to those one-sidedly emphasised viewpoints into a unified analytical construct. That contrasts very sharply 
with historical materialism's focus on changes in material conditions and the organisation of the mode of production, that is, of the forces and relation of production, which Faber would have seen as an ideal typical perspective of history rather than a truly objective one. And lastly, it's worth bearing in mind that Weber actually paid very little attention to questions of class as such in his writings. Uh, the impression to the contrary seems partly rooted in the fact that Weber's um, few writings on class happened to be amongst the first that were translated into English. So, again, given all of those numerous and very significant differences, why on earth should we, as present-day Marxists, look back to Faber? What's there to gain from such a reappraisal? Well, part of that answer is simply that we should take ideas seriously, especially where, as with Weber's, they pose direct challenges to our own. Another part of the answer is in Marxism's own complex relationship to sociology. Now, because Marxism predates uh, sociology as an academic discipline and offers its own framework for explaining and understanding society, Marxists have long characterised sociology as a bourgeois science uh, with which it competes directly. And for much of its own existence as a discipline, as I said before, sociology, especially in America, didn't treat Marx as a canonical thinker. And as Weber happened to be canonised as a founding father of sociology, it remains central to uh, most introductions to sociology to this day. He's tended to be cast as Marx's main opponent in the social theory, hence his reputation as the bourgeois Marx. Now, that label, which um, the sociologist Albert Salomon coined, was initially meant actually as a term of praise for Weber, but since then, we Marxists have tended to use it in a much more derisory sense. Now, what's perhaps most important, and this really is what's going to take up the rest of the presentation, is the curious way in which Weber, despite the liberal nationalist views that he himself held, has been appropriated by various important left-wing thinkers. In other words, there has been both a right Weberianism and a left Weberianism. And very often, these left-wing attempts to draw on Marx and Weber uh, try to combine their ideas into a single framework. Now, I'd argue there are really two related uh, categories to bear in mind when we talk about left-wing interpretations of Weber. On the one hand, there's what I would term Weberian Marxists, by which I mean P 
people who generally work within a broadly Marxist paradigm, but incorporate aspects of Weberian ideas. On the other hand, you have what I would term left Weberians in a narrow sense. That is, um, scholars who have uh, constructed a left-wing version of a generally Weberian paradigm, but have incorporated Marxist ideas into it. And that style of thinking, which we will come to see, largely came about in and around the new left of the 1960s and 70s. Now, obviously that is a lot to take in, but um, um, are people still at least vaguely with me? Give or take. Okay, uh, hopefully the discussion will... Uh, allow us to um, string everything together more neatly. So, let's begin with the first of those categories of left-wing appropriations of Weber that I brought up. Weberian Marxism. Now, that strand of thought mostly traces back <coughs> to another figure who is being discussed very heavily at this festival, uh, Georgi Lukács, the Hungarian philosopher and revolutionary. Now, Lukács knew Weber personally, as part of the circle of intellectual friends Weber uh, would regularly meet in Heidelberg in the 1910s. Eventually, Lukács would fall out with Weber because Weber like much of the German intelligentsia at the time, notoriously enthusiastically backed the First World War because he you know, thought this would be uh, the opportunity to um, renew the greatness of the German nation and all of that. But even with that very significant falling out, Lukács still felt incredibly indebted to Weber intellectually, uh, and made ready use of Weber's ideas um, for his own distinct brand of Marxism. Indeed, in 1966, Lukács actually went so far as to say, today I do not regret that I took my first lessons in social science from Zimmel and Max Weber and not from Kautsky. <laughs> so, how exactly did Lukács try to integrate Weberian ideas into Marxism? A lot of that leans heavily on Weber's notion of rationalisation. Now, according to Weber, modernity is characterised by an increasing drive to make everything calculable, which Weber associated with um, the felt need of modern private entrepreneurs to aim and plan for economic success. Uh, as Sir Weber put it in Economy and Society, 
Rationalization means that principally there are no mysterious incalculable forces that come into play, but rather that one can, in principle, master all things by calculation. This means that the world is disenchanted. One need no longer have recourse to magical means in order to master and impose the spirits, as did the savage, for whom such mysterious powers existed. Technical means and calculations perform the service. Now, obviously, we in modern times would avoid terminology like the savage, but um, that... Um, Drive to make everything calculable, predictable, rational, etc., is one that Weber thought was the hallmark of the modern age. And in the final part of the Protestant ethic essay, um, Weber characterizes that as a kind of unintended consequence of the birth of modern capitalism. In other words, it captures the idea that. Modern capitalism gave us substantial benefits, like increased productivity, but it came to encase us within its operations and its worldview in manners that have cost us significant aspects of our own freedom. So, tell me, have any of you uh, come across the term iron cage of modernity or of rationalisation Okay, so that is a term that appears in the first English translation from 1930 of the Protestant ethic. It is actually a very bad translation. Uh, the term in German is Salhartese uh, Gehaus, which would translate more closely to shell as hard as steel or casing as hard as steel. And uh, in an evocative passage, um, Weber describes how um, what was initially a thin cloak that could be thrown off at any time was decreed by fate to become that shell as hard as steel. In, in other words, that, um, that drive towards rational calculation that we were once able to simply turn on or turn off, now has mastery over our, our own personal lives. It dominates us rather than vice versa. Now, Lukács linked those ideas about rationalisation to Marx's ideas about commodity fetishism in order to build his concept of reification. So when we talk about reifying something in general English, we mean we are making it thing-like. To Lukács, um, Reification is about how uh, social relations between the producers of commodities appear as if they're objective, calculable things and take a form that furnishes them with features that make us adopt a quantifying, instrumental attitude towards them. 
Is that where the dehumanising thing comes? Yes, absolutely. So to Lukash, this commodity form has come to dominate all forms of social life under capitalism to the point that it's become the dominant form of objectivity itself. To Lukash, reification under capitalism causes a human being's own qualities and abilities to appear not as an organic part of one's own personality, but as things that one can just own or dispose of, like external objects. Which means that people lose their ability to attach subjective meaning to the properties of objects, subjects, human relations, etc., and become isolated and atomized. In other words, reification is basically Lukács' take on what we know as alienation. But in, quite impressively, Lukács uh, thought of all of that when the 1844 Paris manuscripts, which contain Marx's um, important writings on alienation, were not yet available. In other words, he just happened to come to a very similar uh, conclusion to what's in the 1844 manuscripts through this combination of concepts within Weber's writings and Marx's. Now, similarly, the Frankfurt School, themselves very strongly influenced by Lukács, picked up on Weberian ideas. Uh, indeed, uh, before I continue, um, who here has heard of the Frankfurt School? Most people. Okay, so um, a very influential group of German intellectuals um, who were inspired by, amongst others, Marx, Hegel, and Nietzsche. And uh, in the famous work um, Dialectic of Enlightenment by two major Frankfurt School theorists, Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer, there aren't any explicit references to Weber, but there are still very obvious and deep parallels with Weber's own views on rationalisation under modernity. Indeed, Dialectic of Enlightenment basically argues that the historical evolution of Western civilization has been a process of rationalization and disenchantment of the world, resulting in our modern industrial and bureaucratic world. It's a world in which uh, the rationality that triumphs in the universe of the commodity, in the cultural industry, in the administrated society is purely formal and instrumental, indifferent to the aims and finalities of the action. So that's um, tying back to what I said before about how action and social action and the relationship between means and ends features very heavily in Weber's own writings. That's the Frankfurt School picking up on those master themes, <coughs> tying them together with uh, a Marxist, um, broadly speaking, understanding of, of alienation, 
to create this critique of modern capitalism. So, um, Horkheimer did make the Weber connection more explicit in his 1947 book, The Eclipse of Reason, where he directly compared his own uh, concepts of subjective and objective reason with those of functional and substantive rationality developed by Max Weber and his school. Um, likewise, one sees the Weberian influences in the writings of Herbert Marcuse, another prominent Frankfurt School of Theorists, especially in his book uh, One Dimensional Man, which um, famously argues that parallel forms of social repression were arising in both the Soviet and Western worlds, which included the withering of the human capacity for critical thought and for opposition as individuals lose their humanity and become cogs in the machine of consumer society. So, um, what draws together Lukács, the Frankfurt School, is a certain cultural pessimism that has some roots in older German romantic thinking. In other words, it's characterised by a certain fear that under capitalism and modernity, the dominance of abstract calculating reason would end up reducing all forms of value to nothing more than numerical figures. So that's the common thread of Weberian Marxism. I'd like to, I'll quickly establish some of the key figures and characteristics of what I term left Weberianism in the narrow sense. Now, left Weberianism, as I'm using it here, uh, arose in uh, American sociology, especially in and around the New Left in the 1960s, uh, where Lukács and the Frankfurt School tended to draw most of their Weberian inspiration from uh, Weber's writings on rationalisation. Left Weberians tended to draw more from Weber's theories of stratification. So, for the uninitiated, um, uh, a popular rendering of Weber's theory of social stratification, so of the different layers in society, um, is this idea of the three-component theory of stratification, which, which is built around the notion that power can manifest differently in the economic order, as class, in the social or communal order, as status, and in the political order, as party. Now, what uh, brought together the left Weberians was the call for a sociology that was more committed to social change and political engagement. It's something that begins from a very deep sense of moral and political dissatisfaction. And uh, a sense that much of mainstream sociology at the time was, in some sense, complicit with capitalist repression and domination. So the left Weberians wanted to reorient sociology. So 
so that um, sociologists would be committed to values of reason and freedom, that they would research into uh, areas like poverty and exploitation and racism, and that um, uh, they would be more concerned with the relationship between what they study and the wider social structure. Now, much um, of left Weberian social criticism one could see as a moral reaction to the excesses and the absurdities of monopoly capitalism. You know, these are people who acknowledge that much of liberal democracy is kind of a sham, that individuals don't really have power of decision-making because their lives are dominated by huge rationalised social structures. And uh, two prominent representatives of that vein of thought are uh, C. Wright Mills and Alvin Gutner. So between the two, C. Wright Mills is far and away the more famous. He um, was an American sociologist who became familiar with Weber via the German emigre uh, academic uh, Hans Goethe, with whom he collaborated in translating and editing the still extremely popular um, collection of Weber's writings known as um, From Max Weber. He's also very famous for his 1959 book The Sociological Imagination. Uh, where he, he uh, calls for a sociology that uh, better helps people to understand uh, what he terms the connection between biography and history. In other words, the connection between the inner life and the lived experience of the individual and the broader social historical context in which their life unfolds. Similarly, um, Guldner, um, who um, began as quite a mainstream kind of sociologist, but quickly turned into one of its most notorious opponents, um, argued very strongly against dominant interpretations of uh, the need for sociology to be value neutral, uh, in the sense that sociology is or should be free of values entirely. Rather, Gulner, again engaging with Weber, argued that Weber couldn't have meant value neutrality to mean that. Rather, one has to take the argument that social science should be value neutral in the historical context of um, the attempt to preserve academic freedom in the German universities of Weber's time, which did not apply to the American universities of Gulner's old time. Now, in both um, Mil uh, Mills and Gulner, you have this common emphasis on a perceived conflict between 
the individual and society and the importance of social science providing some means by which the individual can make sense of their own lives, can find some way of bringing about a more integrated kind of personality. What is missing in left much of uh, left Weberian writing is the question of agency. Okay, so um, so this is what you think sociology should do. This is at least implicitly the kind of society you want to bring about. Who's going to bring it about? Now, the closest that either of them really gets to identifying the agent that is going to change society seems to come down to voluntary associations in civil society. Oh, and that we will have um, uh, engaged uh, social scientists who will um, help them to become an informed and deliberative public. In other words, what seems to have dropped completely out of the picture, and this is true of both the Weberian Marxists and left Weberians, is the idea of the working class as the agent of historical change. And on that, I'm going to open the floor to discussion. Uh, where possible, I will try to uh, fit other threads that I've either not brought up or only touched upon back into the discussion. Nonetheless, thank you all very much for listening. We run Ideas for Freedom every year. For more talks and discussions, come and join our now legendary annual socialist summer getaway above Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire on the 8th to the 11th of August. This will be a long weekend of music, campfires, food, drink and socialist discussions, workshops, tree climbing and messing about in the great outdoors. Open to all. More information and tickets from £20, including food, at workersliberty.org forward slash camp. Thank you.